Hello, and welcome back to Kvikminderpod, an Icelandic cinema podcast. I'm Rob Watts, and on this podcast, I'm joined by my good friend Ellie Cawthorn to chat about 21st century Icelandic film. It's week three of series two, and we are staying put in the freezing West Fjords for a film with a rich vein of dark comedy and its own sense of time and place. In Dagokauri's Edda award-winning debut feature, Noe the Albino, or Noe Albanoe, from 2003, we basically hang out with a teenager named Noe as he gets bored senseless in his tiny town. This is a quirky comedy with unique characters and a very peculiar atmosphere. In other words, it's hard to describe. Before we begin, don't forget there's a whole series already up and available wherever you get your podcasts, while series two will continue to drop for the next few Mondays. Please also join us on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Kvikminderpod, that's K-V-I-K-M-Y-N-D-A-P-O-D, and let us know your thoughts on the films discussed. Please also click follow on your podcast platform of choice. Right then, let's chat Noe. As a snow flies. Hi Ellie. Hello Rob, how are you? I'm very well, thank you very much. How are you? I'm alright, thank you. I'm good. Third time doing a podcast in the same room? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's quite exciting, isn't it? So exciting. I continue to find it exciting. Well, we won't we won't tire of it this year, I don't think. No, definitely not. Well, and then next year we'll be back to Zoom. Next year I think we should probably <laughs> separate for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Get sick of each other. Yes, but third episode in, we're going back in time. Mm-hmm. So we discussed, actually, how easy it would be to just fill this podcast with films from the most recent sort of five years, ten years. But we're going all the way back to 2003. What were you doing in 2003? 2003 was, I was, was it secondary that. school. Yep. Was I? Yes, I would have been. Just I might, about. Might have just gone to my first gig. <laughs> I just went to the year six disco, probably. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, I would have been. Wait, 1992, I can't do maths. I would have been 11. 11. I would have been 11. Wow. So yeah, yeah, year six disco it was. Oh my God. See, I would have been 14, turning Mm. 15. So that was quite a pivotal moment in my life. But I hadn't yet thought about Iceland. I was thinking you you might have quite liked this film as a 14, a precocious 14 year old, right? Absolutely. I think maybe a couple of years later when, because th- there are a few comparisons that I, that I might make with this film that mm. around that time I was like definitely into. Because I have a comparison from around that time, which I was going to make and I'm, maybe it'll be the same one. Oh, exciting. Uh, but we should say this is a film called Noe Albanoe. In English, that's just Noe the Albino from 2003 by director Dago Kauri. Uh, and it stars... Thomas Le Marquis, who is perhaps familiar if you've seen any of the mm. X-Men films. Yeah, I recognised him. Yeah, he's very distinctive looking. Who is he looking. in X-Men? He plays Caliban in one of the X-Men films. Um, I don't know if you've seen Logan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Stephen Merchant's character in that, who's like hanging out with Professor X, Thomas Le Marquis plays the younger version in... It uh, might be Days of Future Past or something. A younger version of Stephen Merchant? Yeah, but Stephen Merchant is made up to look like... Am I thinking of the... I'm not thinking of the right Stephen Merchant. There is only one Stephen Merchant. What, off of... From Bristol. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Okay, this is way stranger than I'd anticipated. 
I know, I didn't think we'd be talking about Stephen Merchant this soon, but yeah. So I should probably double check which X-Men film that is. Mystique the Mercenary. Don't call me that. No matter how much you pretend to be someone else, Caliban knows who you are. If there's anything worth knowing about mutants, Caliban knows it. So Stephen Merchant was in Logan, mm. uh, and in X-Men Apocalypse, I've remembered, that's where Thomas Lamarckie plays Caliban. And he, mean, he basically looks like he does in this film, but he's much paler. He's pretty pale in this film. He so is pretty transparent pale in, in that one. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the film is called Noe Albinoe, mm. the albino. He's not an albino. No, he's got alopecia, right? Uh, yes. So I he has no his... eyebrows, no hair. No hair whatsoever. It's quite obvious. I did listen to an interview with the director and he was saying how he couldn't find an Icelandic actor who was an albino, who was the right age and could actually act. So <laughs> he went with someone just as sort of distinctive looking and then the albino thing was sort of more of a metaphor for just an outsider, someone who's a bit different. See, to me, the fact that the whole title of this film and, and the fact that he was an albino seemed irrelevant. I didn't understand why he was... I get that he was meant to be an outsider and he was meant to feel different from everybody else. But surely, you know, the actor that they had who is somebody who actually has alopecia, they could have just rolled with that. As the, as the difference. Maybe. It doesn't roll off the tongue as well, I guess. <laughs> he purely thought, we need the character to be called Noe, and that rhymes with Albino, <laughs> so it I, has to be I can't think of Albino. any other reason. I, you know, it's kind of, it kind of, it's, a, it's an odd film, mm. and maybe by keeping the title as it is, with a character who's obviously not as described, that immediately sets you off on a kind of wrong foot. I don't know. Yeah, I I did find that a confusing choice that was made. I thought you I thought there would be more light to be shed on that, but I, or not that, that I, I just, know of. or just that I he was meant to be an albino, but it just hadn't been communicated well. But it was really kind of not mentioned in the plot, was it? I don't no, think it was mentioned. Not at all. all. No, he doesn't. I mean, I don't know how alopecia works, but his dad and his grandma don't have mm. it. I mean, I wouldn't say that his family look anything alike, but it did make me question whether I knew what albinism is mm. and what alopecia is. But we've just discussed it correctly. <laughs> so yeah, a bit weird. So we got it right. We the got film it right. Got it wrong. We could look at it like that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's dive right in and I'll start with a synopsis. In a remote Icelandic village, teenager Noe spends his days shooting icicles, stealing money from fruit machines and chilling out in his makeshift bunker rather than going to school. When a new girl comes to town, his dreams of leaving and starting a new life start to seem possible. Now, 
that sounds like a very generic storyline, mm-hmm. which it is. And it also sounds a little bit more dramatic than this film probably is as well. Until the end. Yeah. Which, which we'll, we will we'll get to. I'm we sure. will get to. Um, so I guess, I mean, this film is about Noe. It's titled Noe. He's our main character. We pretty much just follow him around doing his thing. Um, what did you think of him? Well, I'll start with what I thought of the... Shall I start with what I thought of the film? Or no? Yeah, Should we go, go for it, yeah. For me, this was, wasn't my personal highlight of the series. No. For me, I, I did find it a bit slow and, and some of the decisions made slightly odd. I didn't not like it, but wasn't my personal favourite. What did I think of Noe? So, I... Again, was was wondering if there was something I'd missed here. That it felt like he was meant to be this outsider, this troublemaker. Everybody, everybody really like hated him in quite an intense way, or kind of didn't want to be associated with him. Oh, do you think? Maybe they didn't hate him. Who but, who would you who are you referring to? Well, no one wanted to be associated. His friend David, who yeah, wasn't allowed to talk to him at the door. The teacher who was said, "I will resign uh, yeah. if he is not expelled," uh-huh. which seemed a bit far. And everybody in the town, he seemed to have this reputation of being terrible. And he never seemed to do anything in the first chunk of the film anyway mm. that was really quite that terrible. He basically just didn't go to school. Yeah, you're, you're right. I, th- I feel like we didn't see enough of other people to know why we're supposed to think he's a proper outcast. Like, mm. I think at one point he says, I'm sorry, I didn't fit in. But I mean, if he's grown up there, it's not like he moved there and just didn't gel with the class we don't really know anything about his relationship to other school children there's not a sense which i thought was trying to be conveyed that for example that he was bullied or anything we don't ever see that we obviously see that he looks different to everybody else but there's no sense of like hostility like you say from from other school children so no it was kind of a bit assumed it was like he's an outcast don't ask us for evidence or an explanation why Maybe. I, I mean, I sort of felt like, okay, he's he's separate from everybody else, but that maybe is his own decision. Mm. Uh, he doesn't want to go to school, maybe. And I, I mean, a lot of the film hinges on, is he clever or is he an absolute moron? Mm. Um, and I think we, oh, well, I've certainly, I certainly came to a conclusion. Um, My conclusion was he was really clever. Yeah, pretty much. I thought there was definitely a sense, we kind of saw things from his perspective sometimes, don't you think, that all the adults were were quite flawed. Very much so. And very, like, um, not understanding. Mis- they, they misunderstood him, didn't they? And there weren't very, very many sympathetic adults. And if they were, say, like the grandma, for example, mm. she was, maybe she was she was kind and stuff, but she was kind of quite eccentric and not that useful to him yeah and she didn't really do anything that he could learn from i suppose mm. you i mean you're totally right and one of the things that i i've been noticing across these films that we've discussed in both series there is a very there's very much a sort of generational thing of parents especially at the dads being alcoholics yeah now i mean i haven't cool. looked into it but i wonder if that's a a thing with living on an island you know remote living and especially in this film where they are literally, actually ge- geographically, this is set up in the West Fjords where we were last week, actually about 40 kilometres north of where we were last week. 
I think the town's called Bolungarvik, or that's where mm. it was filmed anyway. I'd never actually, they never actually say where we are. But it's so remote, and you've got the dad who's an alcoholic. Like, he's an alcoholic. Yeah. He? he doesn't really have toothache. I think we can say he's an alcoholic. Yeah. Also, there is another character, David's dad. He, I don't know, he seems like a hard... Sinister dad. Mm. I mean, he answers the door and he lets David talk to Noe, but it, mm. it sounds from David's point of view like he's just a bit yeah. odd. And why, why wouldn't he let his son talk to his friend or come in? I'm interested just about what you said about it being set so far north and um, in quite a remote place. Yeah. Because I was thinking about, you know, like British films and and how much sometimes the kind of context of accents and stuff like that and knowing the setting plays into like the sense of the the atmosphere, really. So like, say if you watch Billy Elliot with subtitles. Right. So you would understand that it was a impoverished community or whatever, but you wouldn't have like the cultural knowledge of like those accents and the kind of culture of that place and the history of that place which is probably never spelled out in the film and i wonder if with this film as well that sense of like it being such a bleak depressing town um or village or whatever some of that is lost because we don't have you know the knowledge of that place and the knowledge of the accents and the culture of that place yes maybe i mean i i, f- I feel like you, you can get say a, that you get, with a, any film. you get a sense of it's isolated i mean it's literally yeah. there's most of the film there's no one else around and also the director has said that it isn't it's not meant to be a realistic portrayal of an Icelandic village although I mean it's quite clearly an Icelandic village up north with no one around um, so I don't know how much culturally you need to know other than a broad knowledge that when you're in an isolated place things can become boring <laughs> frustrating and you find time find ways to pass the time yeah. And often, I guess, that can lead to alcohol. And also, it's very dark. They're even further north. Mm. It gets darker earlier. So, you know, depression could set in. I don't really know. And even from the start of the film, we see Noe essentially digging his uh, a, a snowdrift mm. off his front door. And there's so much snow and a winter in this. I feel like other filmmakers have, have drawn on the, the beautiful side of the landscapes and this is quite wintry quite bleak quite depressing and also should just say on that note the color palette of that kind of bleached Mm. out gray blue green brown color palette adds to that as well it really does this is a this is a cold film Mm, yeah Uh, and i this is the film for me that reminded me of my first trip to iceland the most Really? Which is interesting. I think it's because there's a real palpable sense of cold. Mm. The character, he doesn't, I know he wears almost nothing. And he's just <laughs> wandering around all the time in the cold, slipping over. Um, <laughs> Iris at one point, like, is absolutely freezing. And that was my experience the first time I went. I went right in the middle of winter and it was just so cold. You needed one of those hats that Noe had, obviously. The, yeah, the, big... the tea cosy hat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That would have sorted you right Absolutely. But between that and the kind of timeless feel of the film, Mm. I feel like the first time I went to Iceland, and this was only in 2010, but it, for me, it felt, it was completely unknowable and everything felt a little bit like it hadn't caught up with the rest of the world slightly, which it certainly has now. 
so f- for those reasons, it just I was like taken straight back to that first time that I uh, that I went to Iceland and stayed in a guest house, which was it looked a little bit like uh, Noe's house. Well, there were some truly kind of. I hope it looks more like Noe's house than Noe's dad's house. Oh God! <laughs> because Noe's dad's house was horrible. Yeah, we were talking about you talked about one hundred and one Reykjavik and their shack. This mm. is that was a cozy shack. Yeah. Uh, this was a, a bleak. This is kind of like a um, murderer's house. Very much. <laughs> I mean, his dad looks like he could be a murderer. Yeah, his dad was not a great role model, really. Should we talk about him? Yeah, let's talk about his dad, Kitty. Hello. I actually thought that he was very well portrayed as this kind of tragic lost man of lost potential you know he mm-hmm. could have been there's there's this kind of inference isn't there that he could have been a singer he could have been a musician we see him playing the piano yeah but that he's let life kind of slip away from him and that patheticness combined with quite a grossness was i think quite well done yeah he's he does eventually think about his life mm. and attempt to put Noe on the right track it comes too late in the film. Mm. Uh, he's just been expelled. But he does feel like he's just sort of wallowing now. Don't you think there are also any attempts to put him on the right track? He says things like, when he gets him the job as a grave digger, yeah. um, he says, let's prove that we're worth it. Mm. And he's obviously just trying to get him on some kind of good track because... He's just almost trying to like correct his own mistakes, it feels like. It doesn't feel like a very caring father to his son. No, do you think when he when he uses the plural that he's like, I want I wanna feel like I've achieved something and if yeah. I can get Noe to do that then at least I've I thought succeeded. that's the way I read it, that mm. he he was almost kind of seeing his own mistakes and trying to claw something back from it. Yeah. I think you're right. And you know, it's not explicit that Noe absolutely wants to get away there's all the the hints towards the tropical island and the talk about hawaii but we never really know no he never talks about wanting to leave until iris turns up and i don't know why he's still well i guess he's at school he's only a teenager i keep forgetting Mm. but why is his dad still there why are they as a family still there his dad is a taxi driver in a town with no one who is he taxi driving anywhere? Also, the talking about tropical islands, I feel like a Hawaiian shirt on a middle-aged man can be like truly joyful or <laughs> truly, truly tragic. And here it's mm. used as like a kind of seed. It's, he's quite seedy, isn't he's, he? He's very seedy. I mean, so this is something I wanted to ask you. Yeah. The gaslighting thing. Yes. What is in the what, as in, quote? What would be called quote negging? Yes, that's yeah. it. Uh, the the whole tell her she looks she's put on weight. Yeah, and then she'll want to come back. That's I mean obviously that's not good parenting. 
Yeah. He says it again at the end. After everything that's mm. happened, the dad says that phrase to Iris. Why? But Is he that seedy that he's yeah. now hitting on Iris? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's oh. So I read this as that it's kind of a demonstration of how, you know, toxic and seedy he is that he says, if you like a girl, yeah, find the most beautiful babe and tell her she's put on weight and she'll, you know, come she'll be desperate for your attention. And I don't I think that that's never given approval. It sh- it's said as a thing to be like, look how gross this guy is. Yeah. And I think that when he then says it to Iris, who is obviously like 17 or something, it's an indicator of like how low he's kind of willing to stoop. Mm. And also, I don't know whether there's, it, it's just kind of a final like humiliation, isn't it? Of your father trying to hit on the girl that you're into. Yeah. <laughs> in a sleazy way. Yeah, it's. I think that's what I felt. But I, I was part of me was like, maybe he's like, you know, no, he's just been through a load of shit, which we'll talk about. We've jumped ahead a bit, but um, maybe he's just trying to make Noe feel better since the whole plan that he had fell through. Mm, I didn't. No. I didn't see it that way, but no, I, I wasn't sure. It felt very much more like I, other things he said as well. Where then the, in the same conversation he says, "Oh, just make sure you don't." get her pregnant because unwanted children oh. are a real pain in the ass basically didn't they? indicating that noem perhaps wasn't oh yes very much indicating that so mm. basically not a great father <laughs> Oi. Gengur að sætustu stelpunni í bekknum og spyrða hana hvort hann hafi ekki fitnað. Og ég skal lofa þér því hún er að geta að láta því í friði fyrir þú búin að sofa hjá henni. Það klikkar aldrei. Myndu bara eitt nóg minn. Hann að nota smokkinn, slýsabörn, gerir ekki bóða vendar sér. But on his grossness, yeah. I just to say, well, firstly, there's the fact that he's always chain smoking and like hacking up some uh, horrible flesh. So gross. The scene, I have to ask you about this the scene with the liver, putting oh. the liver in the grinder. So he's feeding all this liver into like, oh, absolutely vaulting liver smoking <laughs> with one hand covered in liver yeah other one shoving it in a grinder mm-hmm. um i mean maybe we need to talk about whether this is a funny film or not but there's the scene that then transpires in which noe accidentally pours a, a vat of blood basically on his dad <laughs> and his grandma was incredibly strange yes did you not feel like that fit within the film i did feel like it fit but i was also <laughs> It was just, I mean, it was funny because it was so bizarre, but also Mm. the fact it was never explained what they were doing. Right, well, here's a cultural thing, I suppose. They're making blood sausage. Oh, I I was like, is it black pudding? Essentially. So he's grinding up the offal. Nan is like sewing the casing, I think. No, he's chopping up the... I thought she was just knitting. I thought she was knitting a jumper or something. (laughs) I mean, it's possible, but I'm pretty sure it would make sense in the context. And no, he's, I think he's chopping up intestines and obviously he's boiling the blood. And it is, it's one, it's the, 
kind of the most memorable scene because the film is so blue, green, mm. pale. And then this red blood, this tidal wave of red blood just goes flying. And I love it. I love this scene. You were saying, is it a funny film? I think this film is very, very funny. It's very tonally... Odd. Odd. Yeah, I think odd is in a way that maybe more than any other that we've watched that I feel like I could see, say in like Under the Tree, the comedy, I'm like, it's very dry, but I get what the joke is here. Whereas this, I'm just like, that was just... unexpected yeah I I agree and this is probably a good point to say like the films that maybe it resembles in some way Mm. for me it has that kind of offbeat quirkiness of say after three (laughs) (laughs) one two two, three Napoleon Dynamite I was gonna say it's like a dry serious Napoleon Dynamite yeah very much and I'd be when you said oh from around that time when I was a teenager (laughs) weird offbeat comedy I knew it was coming okay it's that kind of dry Mm. comedy that ran almost random I think everything kind of makes sense contextually in this film it might come out of nowhere but at least it's like that's something they would be doing but it is all very like just odd and offbeat I'm not sure I think what I was I was trying to put my finger on like when you said how do you feel about Noe and maybe that for me has just kind of highlighted it that in Napoleon Dynamite it's all odd and offbeat but Napoleon Dynamite himself is very odd mm-hmm. and offbeat and the performance is delivered as a comedy performance yeah but in this film, Noe is meant to be odd, offbeat, but I thought the performance was like quite straight, which then I think confused me tonally because it's not like he's doing a kind of weird caricature like Napoleon no. Dynamite. He's just, to me, it's it seemed quite quite a kind of naturalistic performance in a kind of oddly comic, tonally bizarre film. Yeah, well, maybe with because that film, that scene, the blood scene, mm. it starts and ends like apropos of nothing. You don't. <laughs> yeah. That one of my favorite bits of that is that you see the blood gush all over Dad and Nan, and they just stop, and they're just <laughs> like, um, and Nan's just sort of their faces are just a picture because they don't really do anything. They don't know how to react. Noe's face is just like, oh. And then it cuts. It has no relevance to the rest of the story. It didn't really. But I did feel like there were a couple of sort of hints at what was to come. Okay. So the blood covering the pe- uh, the, yeah. the nan and the dad, maybe that's a precursor of death. Mm-hmm. Iris at one point says, I'm freezing to death. There's just little bits where I was like, oh, maybe it's just hinting. Ah, what's to come yeah i guess that's the kind of thing that you pick up on a second viewing more so yeah i guess so and it just yeah it, that was what it felt like it was there for for me but noe's face was a picture i absolutely loved it because he just sort of was like oh i've done that okay uh all right and then that was it and then i love the next line when he's on his date with iris and she's like why don't we go back to yours and he's just it's a bit messy <laughs> <laughs> that's one way of putting it yeah. another a scene i found uh, i know we're kind of talking about something else but while we're talking about funny scenes mm. i think my favorite scene was when he's haggling about the depth of the grave he's got to dig with the priest which yeah. is very obviously self-consciously a comic scene mm-hmm. um saying oh there's no way that i'm gonna dig it three meters 
I'll do you two and a half. And then <laughs> the priest is saying, it's got to be at least 2.6 or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that scene because he's quite clearly trolling the priest as well. Mm. Just Because just before that, he's like, I can see you move to the east. Obviously, he doesn't know where east is. It's blowing like a gale mm. and there's snow everywhere. And then he starts directing him to the grave. He's like, I think this is why I think we know, know he's clever because he's totally trolling the priest. He gets warmer and warmer, and then he's like, fuck this, I'm going to walk over there and make the priest come out here in, yeah. the, in the snow as well. No way, no, it's good. Make your life. Here we go, I have to beg you to take care of my grief. So, let's go, let's go, Stur. No, 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 no. I said, Stur. Sérðinni? Við erum bara að tala um staðal frá ráðunitinu. Nei, minn, þú grefur enga þrjá metra núna í þessi frosti. Það er við glemt því, sko. Já, já. Hérðu, segjum þú er á fyndjuðu og þú segir engum frá því. Tveir metrar. Nei, nei, nei. Það er algjört skandaltmaður. Tvo að tuttu þá. Tveir og þrjá því, já. Það er algjört lámarki. Okay. That was again a strange little interlude, the working at the graveyard situation, which didn't really lead anywhere or go anywhere. I guess, you know, when you did the synopsis at the start of the episode, it was like the synopsis is he's kind of an outsider and he's trying to work out what to do. Mm. A lot of the content in it isn't kind of like moving forward in a narrative arc it's kind of like little episodic scenes isn't it it is a little bit and it sort of reminded me of echo in that way of it's just oh, like yeah. here's a thing here's another thing but again they're trying he and his dad in that instance are trying to see if they can put him on the right track and that's kind of what the film is is mm. he doesn't fit in but maybe there's something he can do mm. not that digging a grave is a particularly intelligent job necessarily mm. but there there's a reason it was there and it's the same with the fortune teller stuff <laughs> the whole thing about the fortune teller is just a bit mad yeah for me but but this whole thing he's of a death, mechanic and a fortune teller of yeah course. and the uh the guy who plays him is a carpenter and an actor oh really yeah. multi-talented then i guess when it's a small village you know you've got to diversify your income absolutely and we've seen it with the actors we talk about <laughs> Apparently, the, the head teacher, Thorstein Gunnarsson, who we did see in Jar City as the guy who gets killed in the basement, Holbear. Uh, oh, I'd forgotten that. But apparently, he's an architect. <laughs> he's an architect, and he's occasionally just in a few award winning films on the side. Exactly. Love yeah, it. that's so good. Love it. But, uh, and Kiddy, he thrust a Leo. He's a trawlerman for two years, and then he'll really? come back in Iraq for two years. I mean, this was according to interviews from Whenever around the time it was released. I thought he was brilliant. If we're also talking about, I know we were talking about a while ago, 
films that it kind of evokes for you. Mm. That sense of, oh, he's like, you know, disaffected male youth. He's an outsider. He doesn't fit into society. He doesn't play by the rules. To me, is very reminiscent of a lot of the central themes in 101 Reykjavik. Yeah. Um, which obviously was only made a couple of years earlier. So I don't know whether there was any kind of inspiration taken from that. Uh, possibly. Um, or, I know... wh- or whether it was a sense at the time that there were all these young people in Iceland that didn't really have, like, didn't really want to just go into the traditional society, didn't really know what to do with themselves, and left it a bit of a loose end. Maybe. I know it's probably the experience of the directors as well. Mm. I know that the director of Noe, he... So he was quite young, right, when he did this? This was his first film, his debut, uh, but he'd had the idea for Noe as a character for a very long time, so since the start of film school, maybe even earlier. And he'd been searching for an albino act, Icelandic actor, since then. (laughs) (laughs) But he kept that idea, and I guess you're probably right. I don't know whether he was probably at film school when 101 Reykjavik came out, so it's very possible. But it's probably like like what he said about the, the, the generation of parents and the alcohol. There's a, probably a whole generation of their children mm. feeling, like you say, disaffected and isolated. And yeah, I don't want to just sit and do nothing in a garage um, <laughs> for the rest of my life. Which is really interesting because Iris is a completely, is almost the opposite character. Mm. She's already escaped and gone mm. to Reykjavik, to the city. And now she's back and doesn't want to escape again. Yeah. So... I found that really interesting that, okay, you can be bored and frustrated of small town life and isolation, but actually maybe the city is just too stressful, there's too much going on, and it's trying to find the balance. I wish we'd heard a bit more from her or kind of filled her character out a little bit more. Again, perhaps we're getting back to the like early 2000s female characters being a bit um, flimsy, mm. but... She did kind of appear as just a bit of a, like, pretty girl without much behind her. Do you yeah, think that's fair? I think that's fair. But what I did appreciate was that she wasn't the manic pixie dream girl. Mm, that Be- she didn't want to run away. Exactly. It got to the point. Noe finally makes the big leap and, you know, takes his money out of the bank after a ridiculous armed robbery. Another great comic scene, actually. Yeah, I love that scene. Like, the characters know him so well. It's like, a lady's just sat there with a shotgun at her head and she's just not interested. And the bank manager just comes up, takes the gun out of his hand and goes, go on, go home and don't yeah. cause any more problems. I love that. But yeah, so Noe takes the, takes the leap and gets his money, buys a suit, steals a car, and then she doesn't say anything. She doesn't want to go. Uh, whether that's because she's not in Maybe love with him. because they've only been on two dates. Quite. And, yeah, they've only been on two dates, but she doesn't actually want to go back mm. to the city or wherever just yet. She's come home for some respite. And, yeah, she says she's bored, but she obviously wants a bit of that, yeah. I, I reckon. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's kind of used, isn't it, as his... Almost like the foil to his dreams, like the final thing of, like, he can't ever get out and... There's a sense that, I guess it's followed up, isn't it, by him being arrested and it's just like a part of a final downfall. Mm. Come on. 
Think of Muff. Slik kommer jeg. What did you make of the Iris Noe scenes? Because we have them break into the museum, mm-hmm. which I thought was quite fun. That was good, yeah. So they break into the museum. We see them looking at the map, don't we? Yeah, and they see Hawaii. They hang out in the uh, garage diner, as it were, yeah, smoking. She, she te- uh, he teaches her to smoke. Yeah, mm-hmm. amen. Then he <laughs> makes a kind of creepy appearance at her house. Yeah, that was weird. He climbed the entire drain pipe. All I could think was, that drain pipe is absolutely freezing. How are you, <laughs> how are you even touching it, let alone climbing, scaling an entire house? <laughs> I was just like, mm, it's not going to end well. It's going to fall off. And I think that might be all we get. Yeah, so, I mean, they have this. They have a little bit of time together. They have a kiss. Uh, it's probably the f- his first kiss. His dad asks him if he's having sex. It's like, awkward. Who do you think he's having sex with then? <laughs> Don't you think, though, as well, that she's kind of just like a a symbol of hope and escape? Yes. Do I you think that's all she is? Yeah, I think it is all she is, really. I, I like the idea that she's the foil to his yeah. dreams of escaping. Like, people come and go. And I think I read something about the director saying, you know, people leave Iceland. Pretty much everyone will leave Iceland, but come back. Yeah. You know, they want to get away, but they'll inevitably navigate back home mm. and continue their life there. And I guess this is on a much smaller scale, mm. but it does happen. It does feel like Hawaii or wherever is a very long, long way away from where they are. Incredibly long. If you're saying the, she's the foil of him wanting to escape, like Hawaii is the foil of Iceland in terms of that they're in the middle of nowhere in the freezing cold, snow everywhere. And the dream is not just of somewhere kind of... It's not of Reykjavik, is it? It's of no. the the opposite side of the world, the most different place you could possibly imagine. Yeah, hot, sand, palm trees, crystal blue sea, none of which we actually get in this film because Iceland isn't that. <laughs> and I, yeah, I, can, I can see why that might be appealing. Mm. But, I mean, he wasn't going to get there with a, however much money he had in his bank and a stolen car, was he? <laughs> no, I don't think so. But we saw, you talked about this being, is it a comic film? I think this film is really, really funny to a point. And then it goes, it does the, does the classic Icelandic comedy thing mm. of not ending in a particularly nice way. So are we going to talk about the ending now? Am I allowed, finally? No. <laughs> <laughs> that was brilliant. Before we get to the end, I just want to talk about the comic moments that we haven't discussed. Yes, okay. Because I, there are quite a few, particularly involving the Nan. <laughs> yes! I love the Nan. I had a lot of time for her. My favourite Nan moment was when she was just doing a little shimmy, like a little ballet dance 
on her own. like <laughs> In the bedroom? <laughs> yeah. Which, again, had no relation to anything. It's just a quiet little moment of her doing a thing. I love that. Because Noe's what? Noe's making pancakes when he yeah, should be at school. Incredibly really bad. I was thinking, he's got a good action. Mm. But he was left it on that hot plate for, for way too long. too long. You, know, you couldn't even eat it if it was like that. No. I mean, he was trying, I guess. I don't know. But what, I mean, what is this Nan doing? <laughs> At one point it does say, now we should do the Jenka. I don't know what she's listening to or watching, but apparently the Jenka is like a Finnish line dance. Like the traditional ah. folk Finnish line dance. Yeah, I can see that. somehow has been adapted to exercising grannies. <laughs> I'm into that. Yeah. It looks quite fun. Do a little Jenka here and there. <laughs> Just with your arms down by your sides in your <laughs> yeah. bedroom, fully yeah. clothed in your, your knitwear. your other favourite Nan moments? The birthday scene was so sweet, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, she's cutting up this tropical island cake. Mm-hmm. Do you think she made that herself? Yeah. You of do? Of course. Yeah? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Fair. And, you know, she gives him present, which is the, uh, what do they call it? Um, yeah, the Viewmaster. Is that what they're called? I think so, yeah. Like the old school, look in the binoculars and click through mm. a bunch of photos, which I mean, obviously it adds to this kind of timelessness thing. Like, we can't be in the 80s. (laughs) Do you think moments like that... So, just to draw back to the Napoleon Dynamite reference, that that was a film that was so, like, self-consciously kooky. Yeah. Like, that was... And that was very, like, of that time, wasn't it? Like, Amelie probably is another good example of, like, Mm -hmm. ooh, we're so off the wall, oddball, eccentric. Do you think that this falls into that category to an extent i think it's funny you say amelie because i wrote down jean-pierre Jeunet as well uh, who's director of amelie and he did delicatessen and the city of lost children and if you take away the kind of fantastical steampunk elements of some of his films you get what we've got in this film especially when noe's in the basement it looks exactly like a Jeunet film and the characters are all a bit kooky and a bit Mm. off the wall but i think for here it's not it's a much more naturalistic portrayal with yeah with moments it's less kind of grating like the eccentricities aren't yeah aren't kind of twee and grating they don't feel forced no no but they're definitely there yeah there's definitely a sense of a heightened comic moment mm. coming out of a natural scenario rather than the whole thing is just Look at this heightened real. It's not even. Is Napoleon Dynamite even real? I, mean, <laughs> I don't know. It's all very much, you know, working on another plane. I think. <laughs> yeah. Whereas this one, it is very much 
I know the director has said it's not supposed to be a real Icelandic village, but it does feel like a real place. Yeah. And then these moments, I mean, maybe nothing like that ever happens up there. So we need it. I think maybe maybe that's why I'm confused by it tonally. You know why I was saying, it, is it comic or is it... And I can't really work it out because I think it's almost like it doesn't... For me, this is not really a critique of the film. It's more a critique of what I'm used to in that, you know, usually I'll be like, this is realism. It's a drama. It's naturalistic. Or this is like magical realism, fantasy, comedy. Mm. And it's everything's kind of dialed up or made more intense or made stranger. And this feels like it falls between the two. So like the characters are strange, but not so not so strange that they're not real. And the situations are strange, but not so strange that they couldn't happen. Do you know what I mean about, I wonder if it had lent in a bit more to the oddball eccentricity whether I'd find it in my mind easier to ca- categorise. Mm, I'm not sure. I think it, if it had leaned into that, you couldn't have had the ending we had. <laughs> yes. Which we will come to, I do promise you. <laughs> Please. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get there, other comic moments. I mean, it's all just, for me, it is kind of a, a collection of moments mm. in this boy's life and the stuff that's you know happening in this village. So, just for example, I mean, he's eating prunes. Oh, that's what he was eating. I think so, because he was taking the, the yeah. pip out. Who eats prunes? Who, I mean, maybe his nan. <laughs> yeah. But like, he's eating prunes, weird. On the food <laughs> front, the French class. Oh, oh. my God. <laughs> okay, the French class. I put, why is this guy talking about mayonnaise for so long? Yeah. That felt very Napoleon Dynamite. It's it kind of did, didn't it? I I really liked it because he's like so into it. Like, you know what? To make this French class a little bit more interesting, I'll do an activity. We'll make it so that you can see something, and we'll talk through it in French. And you know, we learned that a yolk in Icelandic is the red rather than the yellow, mm-hmm. which is uh, good to know. I haven't double checked if that's true, but I assume so. So I quite liked the idea that he was like doing this mayonnaise recipe, but his whole delivery was hilarious. And he's like, you must keep stirring. You must keep stirring. And, he gets, and of course he gets interrupted and stops stirring. I guess, I guess it does have a slight point to it, doesn't it? That school is lame and boring. And if you're a genius and some man is going, stir the mustard for like <laughs> 10 minutes, just on repeat, you'd be like, nah, I'm not interested in this. This is boring. Yeah. You, you can so, see why he's not there. Yeah, I was like, I'd send a, a tape recorder to listen to this mm-hmm. class rather than attend it myself. I back you on that, Noe. I love that. In fact, you know, that, that teacher is Thomas Lamarckie's dad. Oh, interesting. Not an actor. Actually a French teacher. Or a teacher. J'ajoute de la moutarde. Je mélange. Et j'ajoute de l'huile. Je continue à tourner. Aldres Kiftem Hunt. Aldres Noévecht. Ou Aldres Top. Aldres. De l'huile. 
Afsakið, ónæði. Er hann nógu nokkuð stættur hjá þér? Já, svona, þetta er smeksa tríði. Nógu minn. Nógu minn. Ætlarðu aðeins að eiga við mjóð? Hvað er eitthvað að? Nei, kóttu bara aðeins við mér. Má ekki hætta. Nei. Nú er það ónýtt. Yeah, love that French teaching scene. Thought it was hilarious. Um, I, I loved all the Elvis stuff as well. Mm. I, I only first really ever heard the song in the ghetto in an episode of New Girl. Really? Didn't yeah, I didn't know it before that. I think Elvis to me as well really screams like tragic over the hill man trying to claw back some like vestige of glamour from ah, his youth. That's a really good point. Yeah, don't yeah, you think? Yeah, that's yeah. always always what Elvis makes me think of. But that's that was Elvis's life as yeah, well. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Jeez. So all these jokes, which we think don't have any meaning, actually all have many layers of meaning. So many layers. You're the one who said they didn't have meaning, not me. <laughs> <laughs> but this, even the song in the ghetto, like half the lyrics to that song happen in this film. That song has been chosen for a reason. Yeah. You know, the song goes, the child needs a helping hand or he'll grow to be an angry young man someday. You're like, uh, uh, how many times have we said nose. on the nose in this, <laughs> this podcast? But you know... That's exactly what it is. Uh, it's there for a reason. And the cat, obviously, is called Elvis... Uh, whatever his middle name Arnold is. Arnold or something. Elvis Aaron. That's it. That scene in the bar, I found funny and also tragic. Mm. Uh, where he says, I'll take you out for dinner. He's halfway for his dinner. And, and he makes right, him... Yeah. Come on, we're off to the bar. I was like, he hasn't finished eating. I know. And he's like straight up and at the bar and he tries to buy him a drink. Mm. Which, I mean fine but are you trying to make him you because yeah. like start him as a teenager on the booze yeah thank god for the bartender who i think is the director actually <laughs> god everybody in this film is somebody else mm -hmm. whether it's a trawlerman a carpenter <laughs> the director himself love it um one point on um so he says how you know is he 20 which is obviously the drinking age and he's meant to be 17 isn't he is it 17 I think he's meant to be 17. Okay. And I was going to ask you how old you thought he looked, because I thought he looked probably about 25. He do, I thought he looked older than a teenager, yes. Yeah. I don't know how old he was at the time, but he certainly looked older than... Because I was thinking, he definitely isn't, like, 14. No. But I'm also not sure how long they're at school for. 17, I was... 6th form? Yeah. I, didn't, I mean, they weren't learning 6th form things. Maybe... Oh, maybe I'm wrong that he was 17, but I thought that's what he was meant to be. So he would have been 26, the actor, mm. which is a lot older than a teenager. Yeah. But, I, I mean, if you, you want this outsider, help. yeah, you, you want someone to look that way, that's just another part of his physical character, is that he doesn't look like a teenager either. <laughs> I mean, also, the long tradition of non-teenagers playing teenagers is... This oh, is hardly the worst offender in that sea, Greece. <laughs> quite, yeah. I think films, I mean, this is, I guess, yeah, 2003. Things are getting better. I don't know if you saw the Fear Street films, but those teenagers are teenagers. I believe it. <laughs> it's so satisfying. <laughs> um, yeah, but that scene in the bar, I mean, I don't know what his dad's playing at. 
I love that they all the people who are in there know he's gonna yeah. get up and sing karaoke. I also like the idea that you can turn up to a bar and restaurant and just sing whatever you want. Yeah. And that in the ghetto is number eighteen in the songbook. <laughs> like, come on, really? There's only seventeen more popular songs than in the ghetto. <laughs> that is strange, isn't it? It is strange. Uh, no, maybe it's just because he's in there so often. Always maybe. singing in the ghetto. Do you think it's like rising in the karaoke charts? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Culturally, there's a moment. Um, you're talking about the, the drinking age. Mm-hmm. And so he doesn't get his beer. Instead, he gets what on the subtitles is called a lemonade, which yeah. he doesn't. It's not Didn't a lemonade. Look like a lemonade it's called Appleson, which is it's basically a or- fizzy orange drink. They should have called it Fanta on the subtitles. Exactly. Just give us something that makes sense because. You, I mean, I don't know, you obviously noticed that it wasn't lemonade. Yeah, because it looked like he was creating like a rum and juice thing. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know how much juice is in Appleson, to be honest. But Mm. yeah, it was very orange. And I just thought, that doesn't translate. It didn't really mean anything. It doesn't take you out of the film necessarily. But it's like, you probably could just say it's orange or something. Yeah, to be incredibly pedantic, maybe they weren't legally allowed to say Fanta. And then you should have just said a um, fizzy drink because <laughs> yeah. or pop if you're Amer- American mm. because I'll have an orange for my son sounds a bit strange on the subject of drinks he also how many times does he order a malt I Ooh, mean yeah why is that all he's drinking is that like a malt that's not a malted milk is it it's like a malt um I don't know how you describe it to be honest almost like a root beer type thing is yeah it? I guess that's the kind of thing it is I had one I don't know why I got it there, but at Lebowski Bar in Reykjavik. How would you describe it. it? It's just like a thick sort of, I don't even know, sort of savoury. Yeah, maybe maybe a bit yeasty. I think I could be malty. into this. <laughs> if it is like a drink that's like a combo of Marmite and beer, then I'm very interested. I think it must be something like that, yeah. I quite liked it, but it's very much really very popular in Iceland. That and Appleson are like the two non-alcoholic drinks that you uh, you might find in a in a garage. Nice to see them getting a bit of airtime then. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, he's constantly drinking malt. But that's purely so that he can go and see Iris. Iris. Well, it, it wasn't the first time, and that's the other thing. I love that he's just like, you know what? I'm just going to jimmy this uh, fruit machine <laughs> yeah. and uh, and steal all the money and then give it back to you. <laughs> I mean, love that because again. He's clever. No mm. one around. I'll do this. And then he's trying to break into the museum. And she actually, she's probably cleverer. She's like, fuck it. Throws a brick in. Yeah. To get in. But yeah, I love that whole fruit machine thing. Yeah. That was it was fun. a nice little trope, wasn't it? Mm. Keep coming back to it. Well, I think this is a funny film. Generally. Mm-hmm. But... You know, the last 10 minutes, absolutely not a funny film. I was so confused. And because I didn't know how long the film was, I thought there was going to be a whole other third act, almost, as it were, that then just didn't arrive and the film ended. What did you think was going to happen in the third act? Okay, so I thought there's obviously a big moment that changes everything. But I thought that then I didn't see that going the way it did, basically. Mm. And I thought there was going to be some kind of redemptive ending of him either going away, uh, you know, we see him on a beach, for example, or like that he has 
he has broken free or that he'd kind of have embraced um, where he lived and, you know, almost like the, the Reykjavik ending that we saw, the yeah. 101 Reykjavik The end. one we loved, that ending. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where we see him kind of embracing his situation and kind of engaging in the community or whatever it were, or like growing up in some way, because it's it's like a, it's a coming of age story, isn't mm-hmm. it? It's like a buildings romance, but... I felt like we were getting somewhere and then it was like, oh, wait, no, the end is all over, bye. Right, because I thought you were going to say, oh, I was expecting him to actually just get out and escape and we'd see him off in the future, like Mm. living wherever, Reykjavik or Hawaii, which I never, obviously, I never thought that was going to happen. But you're right, it kind of left turns you a bit, doesn't it? Uh, Yeah, hugely. So what do we actually get then? We get Noe having... Messed up his bank robbery, been told <laughs> that Iris isn't up for getting away. He gets captured by the police. When we see him, he's actually locked in a cell. And then he finally is just back at home and in his little basementy cellar thing Yeah. on his own. I'm not sure what he does down there. He just hangs out, I think. Yeah, it's quite a cool little cubby hole. I mean, kind of. I like I like cubby holes. If you love a windowless, um, airless room, then yes, it is cool. <laughs> but then I feel like then I was like, oh right. At that point, I was like, okay, there's going to be some kind of. That's when I thought that we would have some kind of redemptive moment. Mm. But instead, we get an avalanche, an off-screen avalanche. Yeah, which was to me when we've had a film of like episodic moments and kind of little comedy skits and all on the theme of him, you know, not fitting in and stuff. Mm. Then to throw in like a huge major plot point right at the end felt very unexpected. Yeah, yeah, I would go with unexpected. Uh, Did you notice that Lynchian grandma was doing a jigsaw at that exact moment of, um, of of a mountain, but she hadn't finished it and all the bits were at the bottom? No, I hadn't. I, thought, I mean, I, that's that's absolutely a second watch spot. Yeah, I was like, oh, that's pretty. But you know how you were saying about the the scene with the blood being poured all over them, mm. and is that a sign of death? But it was also like a a kind of like flood. Absolutely, which yeah. So is the an parallels. Yeah. But I didn't know it was an avalanche immediately. I was like, is this an earthquake? Yes. Well, because we have the the shakiness, mm-hmm. and then that's all we get. And we see Noe in the basement. Uh, and he's like, oh, what was that? Oh, I can't get out. And I honestly thought, because there are two moments while he's stuck in that basement that fade to black mm. for quite a long time. Yeah. I thought, it can't just end with him <laughs> yeah. trapped in this room. Mm. That would be, honestly, after the life he's been living, the worst way to end of mm. this film. It just felt too early. Mm-hmm. Then he comes back, doesn't he? And we're like, okay, still alive, good. Phew. But he's still trapped. Mm. And then it's just like we see him just lying there. It's like, is it going to end now? To be honest, it would kind of be more ballsy if he they had just been like fade to black. That's the end. Bye. Do you think? Well, yeah, because it's essentially the ending that we almost get anyway, but so... just with a bit more um, exposition. I, I I think I disagree with that, actually. Mm. Um, anyway, he gets rescued, which is great. Like, okay, something good has happened, but no one else is alive. 
Um, so where I was like, hmm, this is an interesting avalanche. It seems to have only picked only people that are connected to Noe Albanoe. <laughs> so that yeah, so this brings us back to the kind of odd offbeat thing. It's like it's mm. just odd enough that I think it gets away with being like, you know that it, it killed every other character that we've encountered apart from Noe. Yeah. <laughs> well there aren't many other people left to kill, to be fair. That we know of. We've seen a few school te- school children and the guy at the bar. But why why do you think the director made that choice? Because What this... is the mor- what is the moral of the story? I don't know that there is a moral. I think it's yeah, okay, it's, it's not again, a just it's not a just so story, is it? Not quite. Uh it plays into that whole surrealness mm. of it. But it also it's like saying, Okay, well, Noe's lived a shit life. He's not done anything of any meaning yet, but he has a few people who he knows and who ostensibly are his family and friends. And he he knows he's already lost his his dad and his grandma. I don't know what about where his mum was. We never mm. actually find that out, do we? But he even loses David, who is, a, again, he's his friend. Incredibly peripheral. But he's his friend. Yeah. And then he loses the fortune teller, anyone he's encountered. And it... I think it's basically just saying it's like a it's just really darkly comic like saying mm. you know what everyone he knows is dead and that's really sad it's like a shitty end to a shitty life but actually he's not dead mm. and now all the people that might have been pulling him back into staying in wherever they are Bolongarvik or whatever it is have gone there's probably nothing left there except for the bar so now he's kind of free <sighs> But it's weirdly almost tainted because I was thinking about this and how it could have been some kind of like almost like a weird vengeance moment or like a satisfying, you know, if all the people that had died had been all the people that say like bullied him, Mm. brought him down, all of that, and they all died in an avalanche, then it would be like you say, he's free now, uh, moving on. But some of them were a lot more kind of complex. So obviously his grandma who helped him, Iris who was, you know, even if she didn't want to run away with him, they had they had a connection. Mm-hmm. The bookseller, her her father who who was kind to him in a in a strange way. Yeah. So I was just a bit. I just found it a strange decision to be like. It wasn't very hopeful, was it, as an ending? No, and I don't it think was? it wasn't. It wasn't. Meant it wasn't to be, supposed to be. A hopeful that, that moment absolutely wasn't meant to be a hopeful moment. It was, I think, again, this is me embracing the darkly mm. Icelandic comic stuff. But it was a an excuse the phrase piling on of the kind of <laughs> yeah. shit that he's lived through. Like, mm. you think it was bad? Well, now everyone you know is dead. So where do you go from here? The only way is up. Like he climbed out of his basement. Mm. He's going up. He's finally got the chance to, you know, live his life potentially. I mean, the other on the other hand, he might be like so mm. messed up that he, he could do the opposite. I guess. Yeah, it was just an, it was just a a very bold maneuver. Yeah. Towards the end of a film, which had kind of rattled around within like a little space, mm-hmm. to then finally be like, it's like you're like playing with some little toys here, and then suddenly just come and swipe them off the table and go. Bye. Yeah, very much so. Which, I mean... Did it throw you? Did It, it completely did throw, throw me, you? yeah, I think so. And that's totally the point. Yeah. So he, the director's achieved his end, yes. whether I'll you liked it. it or not, I guess. 
But I think there's room, and we've talked about this with quite a few endings of the films we've discussed. It's like, they're kind of open, they're kind mm. of ambiguous. Especially with Woman at War. We were like, is it hopeful? Well, yeah. Well, also with um, I Remember You, where we we were saying, is it sad because she's trapped in the house with the mm-hmm. ghost? Is it happy because the ghost now has a mother? Yeah. So that, again, was a very like emotionally mixed ending. Yeah, same with Rams. Yeah. A lot of endings where people die. Yeah, we really are seeing a trend there. I thought this was a really quirky, funny film. I loved pretty much everything about it. And from from the opening two minutes when he's shoveling the snow, the soundtrack that sounds like a western set the scene. I was like, I'm here in this cold little town. And then everything that happened, every funny little quirk, I was totally with it. I I absolutely loved it. And then I loved that big old bold ending. I, I your was... ending. Yeah. Well, you're Same. actually convincing me that I liked it more than I did. Yes. <laughs> but not, I wouldn't say I loved it. I wondered what the kind of, the substance of it was a bit, I think. Mm. Um, that it was a collection of quirky, kind of funny, interesting moments. But what was it really about at the end of the day? What was it about? Mm. It was about Noe Albinoe. <laughs> Like we said at the start, it's the classic sort of teenage, coming of age, wanting to escape kind of life. I mean, there's I mean, there's plenty of sort of parallels with Let Me Fall in a way, but it's just a kind of someone's slightly odd take on it. What did you think happened to Noe after everybody they'd ever known was dead in an avalanche? Um... What was the last shot we get? So the last shot was ah, him yes. looking through the viewfinder at a yeah. tropical beach. Mm. And then the tropical beach became real, kind of, as yeah. we were looking at it. I don't think he's made his way to Hawaii. But I think that specific shot is a hopeful shot. Yeah. You know, he has dreams. He's now free to attempt to live them. Uh, I don't know beyond that. But I quite like the ambiguity. I love that the Icelandic version of a hopeful ending is everyone you ever knew is dead. So (laughs) (laughs) the only way is up. Yeah, it's very inverse, isn't it, I guess. (laughs) But I did watch an interview with a director and he said that because that last shot was done in Cuba. I don't know whether Cuba looks like Hawaii or, you know, why they went there. But they did film Noe in shot and then they chose not to include it. To okay. make it more ambiguous. And I think that's the right decision. Yeah, I think I don't so want to see Noe in a Hawaiian shirt like his dad sat on the beach in Hawaii, in mm-hmm. wherever. I mean, maybe it plays into the surrealism of the rest of the comic bits, but mm. it, I think it would have been a bit too much of a stretch. Yeah, and a bit too twee almost. Yeah, I like that whole, all the timeless retro-y stuff. And to finish with that as well, like the gift from his nan that gives him hope. I liked it. So yeah, Noe, Alba Noe, 2003, 
Dago Kauri. And, um, well, I liked it a lot. I liked it a bit. Fair enough. So, where are we going next week? Funny you should say that, because, incidentally, this is totally by accident. So, we are going to watch a documentary, which we haven't done before. Mm -hmm. Not a full-on actual documentary, anyway. But, unbeknownst to me, the soundtrack to this film has a song, has a few songs, actually, but specifically in the scene where Nan is cutting the cake and gives mm-hmm. the, the present. There's a song playing. I don't know whether you noticed it, but it was like a really kind of Casio keyboard style. Okay. And it kind of added to the weird, quirky nature of the film. And I was watching that thinking, I recognise that song. The Nan is really making me think of something. <laughs> and then it hit me. That song is by the subject of the documentary we're about to talk about. So it's a music documentary? Yes. It's a sort of biopic of the lady who made that song. Her name is Sigurdur Nilsdottir. And I think they use three or four songs of hers in this film. Now, Sigurdur Nilsdottir, at the age of 70, started making music in her basement. Fair play. And this documentary, which I, I stumbled across it at a small film festival, I think it was in Birmingham. And it's just a lovely, lovely film about an old lady making music. Great. And it's... It's a very slight thing, but hearing the song in this film, I was like, oh my God, now I'm even more excited to watch and share it because such a sweet story and we've already now had our introduction to her. Amazing. As long as there's no avalanches while she's in the basement. I don't think there are any avalanches. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's called Grandma Lo-Fi. Oh, nice. Great name. The clue is in the title, uh, also known as Amma Lo-Fi. You will have heard Noe call his grandma Amma a few mm-hmm. times, actually. So that's what we're going to do next week. And I'm very excited about that, too. From a dancing grandma to a music-making grandma. For a film as low-key as Noe Albanoe is, it has the most dramatic end scene we've seen since Under the Tree, and the film as a whole certainly split opinion between Ellie and me. All I want to do now is go and re-watch Napoleon Dynamite to see if it still holds up. Maybe I'll do that before heading back to Reykjavik to meet up with Grandma Lo-Fi. This delightful hour-long documentary should warm the cockles right up after the snowy and freezing time we just spent in the northwest. Grandma Lo-Fi also known as Amalofi, can be watched at the link I'll pop in the show notes to this episode and we'll also share via our social media accounts. Talking of which, we are at Kvikmindapod on Instagram and Twitter and if you could leave us a lovely rating and review at Apple Podcasts, we'd be immensely grateful. Oh, and spread the word. See you next week. Tak bless. Thanks and goodbye. <laughs>